Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and I'm going to be reading from verse 11 all the way through chapter 4, verse 8. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11 through chapter 4, verse 8. Hear now God's word. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all, our, all his saints. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And this is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's great to be here with you all. Good morning. Happy early Thanksgiving. We hope and pray this could be a really joyful a time for you and your family amidst whatever circumstances you might be going through, afflictions or trials, uh, that the Lord would bless you and keep you this week. And of course, may this naturally remind us to thank God for his mercy and grace over our church, over our lives individually. And I'll be thanking God for you as I make my way over to Virginia. Uh, tomorrow morning for the week, I'll be praying for you, my dear brothers and sisters, I'm thanking God for you. And you have, over the last 14 months, taught me so much. And I consider myself privileged to do ministry here amongst you. Well, we're continuing our journey through this immensely encouraging first letter to the Thessalonians. A budding church plant with new but growing believers who were stripped, though, from their founding pastors and leaders because of harsh persecution we've covered over the last couple months. But over the last several weeks, we've seen the godly instruction of Paul, the godly encouragement and godly affection from this apostle to these very eager Thessalonian Christians. And as the overall theme of this series goes to this address to this thriving church, Thriving not because they are large in number or have all the uh, greatest resources, but they're thriving and excelling in faith, hope, and love, we saw in chapter 1. And last week we saw what were some of Paul's main ministry goals for a gospel church. Other than the main focus of preaching Christ and him crucified and the proclamation of the gospel itself, as we saw in chapter 1, part of Paul's Ministry goals for a gospel-centered church were, if you remember, three things. Number one, growing in faith and love, that faith and love couplet that's found so many places in the New Testament. 
Number two, devoted to word and prayer. We talked about the ordinary means of grace by which God blesses and strengthens a believer's faith. And then finally, last week we said, number three, one of the greatest ministry goals is to be marked with true rejoicing and thanksgiving. But now we come to a a critical pivot point in the letter. Paul will switch to a prayer of blessing, a petition to our great God, but he'll then, he'll then provide further instruction to what he meant by walking in a manner worthy of God. We, we heard that earlier in chapter 2, verse 12. And so two simple headings, if you're tracking along, to mark our journey through 311 through 48. Number one in those three verses in chapter 3 is a prayer to the sovereign God. And I just want to really highlight the word sovereign. A prayer to the sovereign God. And then the second heading the verses that we find in chapter 4, number 2, a call to live a life pleasing to God in Christ. A call to live a life pleasing to God in Christ. Now, whenever we come to a text that talks about living up to a standard or kind of walking a certain way or patterns, um, I have to be careful. I, I just have to admit A sermon title like this today, A Life Pleasing to God, and of course our second heading, to a recovering legalist, which I am, just reading that and hearing that could make you squirm a little bit. You know, I've mentioned this before, I grew up with really bad eczema, skin allergies, uh, especially as a teenager. Pretty much anything made me itch. If I just walked outside, scratch. You know, it was just, it was that bad. And to the annoyance of everyone around me, thank you very much, I would just scratch, scratch, scratch all the time. And I remember a girl in my youth group who I might have had some feelings for. I was a little bit embarrassed to be around her because she would get so annoyed by my scratching. So we, we would, the church youth group, we would watch a football game or something, and I would be scratching and itching <laughs> quietly in pain. And she would direct, just directly to my face, bark at me and say, stop scratching. You're making me itch all over too. Zero compassion. That was the life of a teenager back then in the 90s in Virginia. And it was kind of like, I can't help it. (laughs) And she's saying, just stop it. And I think for recovering legalists, let me just explain that if if you're new to church or you haven't been here in a while, a legalist is those who were taught that the Christian life was this endless cycle of doing everything, quote-unquote, right, so that God would love you or love you more or approve of your salvation based on your pattern or uh, collection of works righteousness. And so for recovering legalists like I am, sometimes studying passages on obedience, living a life worthy or abstaining from something, or mortification of sin, and so on and so forth, can make you all itchy. And I say this out of experience because I have dealt with this over many years. I grew up thinking it's only what I've done lately that mattered to God and his view of me. In my distorted thinking, my status of being quote-unquote saved was based on my devotional readings for that week or if I was just decent enough that month, and so forth. And so for the recovering legalists, please just 
hear, hear this out, stay to the very end. There's a lot to unpack, but I promise you we'll be pointed to Christ. Because, well, the text points us to Christ over and over again. Even as there are specific patterns of the Christian life we are called to and live up to, yes. But Paul always points us back to Christ. So let's pray really quickly and shortly as we begin. Father, may grace abound in this place. For us weak or strong in the faith. For us who believe but struggle with legalism or even licentiousness. For those of us who may simply be searching here in person or on the live stream. Or for those of us who have been believers for many decades. May grace abound to lead us and point us to the Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, have mercy on us. Would you illumine this text for us by the power of your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, picking up after Paul exemplifies and outlines the ministry goals of a gospel church, he offers this prayer of blessing. That's our first heading, a prayer to the sovereign God. I'm just going to read the first verse there, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. He has this abrupt, we can say, transition to a prayer that is marked, if you look at 11, 12, and 13, three mays. May our God, may the Lord, may he establish as his prayer. But this isn't just merely out of, okay, hold on, time out. I've been writing for two hours. My hand's a little bit cramped. I'm going to take some time to pause and just to pray because that's what apostles should do and that's what Christians should do. No, there is a genuine desire here to pray on behalf of these Thessalonians that he writes it out. He writes it down. I love when people write that in cards that, uh, not just I, I've been praying for you, but they actually write out a prayer for you. How encouraging that is to receive. So this isn't out of ritual or ceremony, but his view of prayer is such a high one, one theologian noted, that he believes so much that yes, we are saved by grace, but that prayer, prayer is a way to depend on such grace to affect gospel change in himself, but of course, others. And so previously, we saw that Paul deeply longed to rejoin them, and so did the Thessalonians want to be reunited with them too. But if you remember, he said those plans were thwarted by Satan. Satan hindered our travel plans. So Paul prays for God to sovereignly make a path for them to return. One theologian noted our plans can be thwarted, but not God's. And so Paul says, okay, we've been hindered thus far, so I'm going to pray specifically to a God who controls all things, a sovereign God. A prayer answered some years later in Acts 20, he does reunite with the Thessalonians. And he's saying, what, what, what more can I do than just pray to the God who controls all things? The sovereign God who he's praying to is one true God. We believe in the Trinity, three persons who share the same essence, three persons, one God. The three persons share co-eternity. And this doctrine of the Trinity, marked throughout this letter, is written about here. And you might look at that verse. You might say, well, I'm not really seeing that. Well, look at that verse here, the Father and Lord Jesus, and then look at the verb direct. 
Oh, may the Father and our Lord Jesus direct our way back to you. Well, that word in the Greek, direct, is not plural as in the Father and the Son, but Paul uses a singular verb there in the Greek. May the Father and the Son united in one. The early church father Athanasius in the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD, arguing against the heresy of Arianism that taught that, okay, Jesus is the son of God, but there was a time where he was not, and he was eventually created. And that was a heresy even in the fourth century that they argued and won against. Jesus was not created, but shared the same essence and substance as the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit is alluded to later in the three persons in this chapter, but also throughout the letter. This is the sovereign God he is praying to. Stephen Lawson, a pastor and theologian, says the persons have different roles, but one God, the Father who chooses us, the Son who redeems us, the Spirit who regenerates our hearts. This is who Paul was praying to. And so if people who are skeptical of the history of Christianity say, well, these were invented later, much, much, way, many, many hundreds of years after Jesus and the early church. No, this was part and parcel of what it was to believe in this triune God, one true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is, is evidenced in these texts. And actually, Athanasius used this text in, in chapter 3 as one of those main proof texts to argue this point. Now to the second portion of the prayer, verse 12, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. This is the second may. May the Lord make you increase to abound in love in an increasing way. He doesn't mention faith here. Remember that famous couplet of faith and love because he's already established that and he already knows that faith produces love. Love is simply a consequence, an out, organic outflow of the gift of faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Galatians reminded us to first love those who are in the faith, but Paul notes that we are to love everyone. Do you see that in the text there? D.A. Carson, one of my professors at Trinity, a New Testament scholar, said once in, in his book that he had some friends who knew of these twin 18-month-year-olds that were needing some care. They were hopping around foster home, foster home, foster home until they would find uh, an adoptive family. And they said, okay, maybe two or three weeks we'll, we'll, we'll have a crib and, and we'll keep them there and just to help these two young souls out. And the first night, as you expect, they found them crying in the, their crib, these 18-month-year-olds, tears but no audible sounds and they realize that they've been traumatized and beaten and abused every time they would cry at nine previous foster homes and so what do they do they said okay it's not just going to be two to three weeks we, we need to keep them for a lot longer before they could find a safe home but during that first week an expert came and visited with the two young children and said, these children are beyond help. They've been so scarred emotionally, physically, we don't know if these children could ever grow up appropriately. 
So this couple of D.A. Carson's uh, uh, friendship said, okay, we will love on them. And they loved on them. And then two years later, this expert, another expert came and said, any trace of that trauma, any trace of that abuse we're seeing is completely gone. And Carson notes, this is the power of the love of Christ. That believers are called to increase and abound in love for one another in the church, but for everyone, there is the power of love. And how do they do this? How does one love more in abundance and abound in love? Well, Paul knows it's following the pattern of Christ. Ephesians 5 verse 2 says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We see that here in our love for one another at our church, but do we pray, O oh God, may we abound and increase in love. And not just for us here, but to those around us. It's great timing that Bruce is here. Thank you, Bruce, for being with us, representing administered justice, Wayside Cross Ministries that we partner with. These two uh, uh, ministries that we partner with for our mercy ministries and our outreach to our community have been such a blessing, not just to our church, but to our communities all around that we are called to love not just those here, but to all. Why? Because this is what faith produces. And Paul says, I'm, I, I need to pray this. I don't rest on this great report from Timothy and say, okay, well, they're good to go. I'm going to move on to stay here at Corinth and Galatia and all these other places and Philippi. But forget Thessalon you know, Thessalonica. They're, they're good to go. No, I'm going to keep praying that you increase and abound in love. And then finally, the next verse, verse 13, his third prayer, so that he may, is the third may, establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, this is one of those verses where it can make you a little bit itchy. And to say, how could we ever be perfectly blameless in this lifetime? We are perpetually sinners until we meet Christ again. Right, Robin? And, and I would say, yeah, I read these kind of verses and, and Paul said this earlier of himself that we are blameless or be presented blameless before our God. And you think, well, what does that actually mean? Well, Rick Phillips, a, a PCA theologian and pastor says, blameless doesn't entail sinlessness, but in the New Testament context, when, when they say to be presented blameless or establish your hearts blameless, it means that our record of conduct should be that of a godly life. It was shorthand to say that. Paul mentions this of himself, like I said in chapter 2, that they were blameless in their conduct before the Thessalonians, and now he's praying that they would also, the Thessalonians, be blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints, with all the Christians who have come before us and be reunited with them, this gradual preparation and spiritual conforming until Christ returns. This is a work in progress. But Paul is saying, I need to pray to sovereign God for that. Their hearts to be blameless and holy, so they would grow in this. A wonderful picture um, Rick Phillip uses as an illustration, 1994, Westminster Abbey in London, 
I hope to visit someday, Lord willing. In 1994, they were celebrating 350 years since the creation of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And one of my all-time favorite preachers, a Scottish preacher, Eric Alexander. Eric Alexander was one of the keynote speakers, and in his address, he said that, you know, before I, I, the last time I visited the Abbey was several years ago. There were scaffolding all around, renovations all, you couldn't even see Westminster because there were so much renovations going on. But he, he alluded to that you can't see anything but something of great significance was happening behind. Everybody knew it, even though they couldn't see it. And he said, oh, but one that was all removed and all those ladders and scaffolding was gone and the finished, renovated product, oh, what a sight to see. He likened that to the work of God in his church and said, quote, there will come a day when God will pull down the scaffolding of world history. Do you know what he will be pointing to when he says to the whole creation, there is my masterpiece. Eric Alexander then says, he will be pointing to the church of Jesus Christ. In the forefront of it will be the Lord Jesus himself who will come and say, here am I and the children you have given me perfected in the beauty of holiness, end quote. Again, who is the source of this work? Eric Alexander knew, the Apostle Paul knew, God is, and Paul prays, may he establish them blameless. May God, may you establish them blameless in holiness. Second Peter says, make every effort to grow in godliness in your faith and so forth, and then he has granted us all that we need to grow in holiness. And so Paul's prayers are saturated with the acknowledgement that God is the source of change, that God is sovereign over all things, and that scholars know Paul is perpetually others-centered in his prayers. You'd be shocked at how free, if you wrote down every prayer while you're driving to work or before you go to bed or before a meal or in your morning devotional, if you wrote down every prayer, I think a lot of us would be shocked at how much of the content related to just you and not to others. That's not a judgment on you or for myself, but to take the cue from Apostle Paul, you notice after I read letter after letter, he's praying so much for others. And of course, Paul provides this example because he learned this from Christ himself. And so how encouraging to read this confident prayer, even though he's getting great reports and good news of their faith, love, and hope, et cetera, et cetera, that he confidently continues to go back to that source to pray to a sovereign God. Now to our second heading, chapter 4, verse 1 through 8. Number 2 is a call to live a life pleasing to God in Christ. A call to live a life pleasing to God and we cannot uh, keep that incomplete. We must include those two words there at the end, in Christ. Verse 1, chapter 4 says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so, here it is again, do so more and more. 
Not a satisfaction of you've already made it, you've arrived, sit back, wait for heaven. No, but he's always saying, I'm praying for more and more and your faith to be strengthened and to grow, to abound in love, to not just say, oh, I've arrived at, at, at this level of Christian life and I'm good, but to keep going, to keep walking. And it's this continuation of the charge to walk in a manner worthy of God. I told you, Paul, in other letters, walk in a manner worthy of God. Walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Walk in a manner manner worthy of the gospel. This is the refrain of the New Testament church. Paul and others are saying not to earn salvation, not to keep you in salvation, but because you are a child of God. And if you remember a charge Earlier in chapter 2, verse 12, that flows out of God's calling you into his own kingdom and glory. The charge always comes after the exhortation that we have been called first. And he says, more and more pursue this as to please God. It is possible to please God in Christ. And I'm going to speak more on that in moments to come. But let's go to verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. That if you could just underline with your eyes or with a pen instructions there, that is actually a unique word in the New Testament. It actually comes from the military instructions. It's a military directive from the highest commanding officer that someone would shudder over in military ranks. I've mentioned the World War I movie 1917 here maybe last year. We're just to summarize two soldiers with a, almost an impossible mission to get this order from the general and the highest in command to go to a group of soldiers that were about to attack retreating Nazi, a Nazi army. But he's telling them, you need to get this letter to them to stand down. They're about to walk into a trap. And the whole movie is about these two soldiers doing all that they could to get this message across. But what allowed the soldiers to get through from point to point was this letter, this instruction from Central Command that bore the full weight of authority that nobody could or would question. That same sentiment is found here with Paul. They received their word as not from the word of man, as he says in this letter, but from the actual word of God. As Paul said earlier, now reiterates this by saying, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as an aside, when our society adapts more and more to religious pluralism, there are no absolute truths anymore, or moving away from the inerrancy of Scripture, even churches and seminaries today say this, instruction and words from these New Testament writers then become optional or even downright offensive. And they say, that's offensive for me, so I'm going to move on to the next chapter. But not so for these Thessalonians, nor for our congregation either at Westminster. We believe this was not just a word from man, but this is the God-breathed-out word of God, including these instructions, including not only the indicatives of God's word, these factual true statements of the gospel, but also the imperatives of God's word and the appropriate patterns of life dictated to us. Verse 3, from this, for this is the will of God. You're saying he's getting to the crux of the matter. This is part of living in the will of God. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. There's a colon there. He's about to list that you abstain from sexual immorality. So he's beginning the topic here. But before we continue, 
Let's try to understand some more what is meant by the will of God. That could be so misunderstood in the modern-day Christian. So I'm going to ask Hal to to put that on the screen there. In modern days, the phrase, the will of God, can become some sort of mystical mystery to be discovered. If we pray hard enough, or if you're spiritually mature enough, oh, the will of God will be revealed to you then. But I found R.C. Sproul's three categories in his book on the will of God to be helpful for this study and discussion there on the screen. I'm only going to keep it up there for several minutes. But here is Sproul's three meanings of the will of God. Number one, we could understand when it's written in the scriptures, the sovereign uh, decretive will, the will by which God brings to pass whatsoever he decrees, This is hidden to us until it happens. We can't figure this mystery out until it's finally revealed. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, says, and by the holy counsel of his own will, freely, Romans 9, 15, and 18, and unchangeably, Hebrews 6, verse 17, God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. That's the sovereign, decretive will. Number two, though, is the perceptive will of God. This perceptive will is God's revealed law or commandments, which we have the power, but not the right to break. Think the Ten Commandments there. We have the ability to break the law because of sin, but not the moral right to sin or break with God's law or his commands. That's the perceptive will of God. But then there's a third category, which I think relates to our passage here today. The will of disposition. The will of disposition describes God's attitude or disposition. It reveals what is pleasing to him, what pleases him, what honors him. As Paul notes that we can please him, then logically that means we can also bring displeasure to him, or as the Bible says, grieve the Holy Spirit. But part of God's will of disposition is noted in the context of what we do here in this context. It's not exclusive just to this, so don't get that wrong. Don't think the will of disposition only is this chapter, but part of it is what we do with our bodies. The will of God, says Paul, is to be sanctified. Sanctification, that word sanctus in the Latin means holy. Facare means to make to make more and more set apart and holy. It's that already, but not yet. We are already sanctified and set apart, but we're not completely there yet in being completely sanctified and holy and conformed to the image of Christ. It's a process that goes on from the day of salvation until the day we meet the Lord. This is God's will to abstain from all forms of sexual immorality, it says there. The Greek word is porneia which in their context meant fornication, but also everything to do, anything you can imagine about sexual categories of sin uh, is this word porneia. And then he goes on to explain, he lists, look at verse four through seven, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. That means logically that before Christ we had no ability to, but after Christ we have an ability to, even though we might not perfectly obey, that we have the ability now to control our own bodies in holiness and honor. Verse 5, not in the passion of lust 
like the Gentiles who do not know God. The word Gentiles there, most of us know it's any ethnic group of people that are not Jewish, but also back then in their vernacular and in their context, Gentiles could be equated to heathens, pagans. And goodness, the stories of sexual immorality is graphic in the Roman Empire world, but also particularly in Greece or here, um, ancient uh, Macedonia, the culture there is beyond imagination. And I'm not going to reveal that because it's not necessary to, but it's a lot worse than what we're dealing with right now, even though we're seeing more and more perversions every day. Part of the reason is they were involved in many worship of false deities, including sexual immorality. And he says, verse 6, that no one transgressed and wronged his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So this is probably in the context, scholars say, of adultery, a great wrong against another antithetical to loving others that he was just highlighting that God is an avenger. It could be an allusion to earthly consequences, of course, when this happens and sexual sin. But most definitely in the day of judgment, if you are not in and united to the Lord, to be warned, Paul says. And then finally, verse 7, for God has not called us, there's that word again, calling. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Again, holiness is just set-apartness. And so in today's cultural context, don't be conformed to our society 2,000 years ago or 2,000 years later. Our society is becoming more and more gripped by paganism even in our nation. We see this all the time. In the acceptance of homosexuality and transgenderism and all these sexual orientation categories, it's confusing to keep up with. But don't fool yourselves to think, oh, the only way to reverse sin, the only way to reverse cultural uh, decline is not through authorities, is not through legislation, although those things can help restrain evil. But for Paul and the apostles and the early church, it's the gospel. Instead of pointing the finger and saying, look how decrepit our world is now, we point to Christ. There is no room for us to judge based on this sin or that sin Not all sins are created equal, of course. But for us to say, they're probably doing that. Why? Because, verse 5, they do not know God. And how do I reverse the curse? How do we reverse the effects of sin? Well, it's not by screaming and shouting and judging. It's pointing to the gospel of Jesus Christ. (laughs) I'm not that old. I'm not that young. But I've lived long enough to say that's the only way, the only solution to transform a sinner's soul is by the reception of the gospel, the pure gospel of the Bible, in faith alone, by grace alone. So yes, pray for our society. Pray for your own depraved heart. Pray for your family members and neighbors and so forth. But pray that the gospel is the one thing that we present and point to.
The church needs to stand and proclaim Christ, not just sit on our own works or patterns, but proclaim Christ to ourselves and to others. And then finally, verse 8, as we conclude, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Look at that word, disregards. It's, it's actually much more weightier than that. As one scholar, Leon Morris, says, it's to treat as void or null. Remembering this is part of living for the will of God, Oh, disregarding the spirit then is a serious, serious charge, a game that you do not want to play. So do, do not treat this as void, but as the word of God. And so in our culture today, in our sanctification, which again means to be set apart, is not just what you do on Sundays, but it's how you live and operate and, and your patterns of life for family, for relationships, for what you do in your leisure for the view of your life in front of a watching world. This is how we influence culture, is just living for the pleasure of God. And so going back to you all, including myself, encouraging recovering legalists, pleasing God is living God's way, abiding in him and in his word, all in faith in the one who grants us the grace to actually obey. So this is not pull yourself up by the you know, bootstraps and just get to work and living to please God, but living out of the grace of God to obey. Because even, the Bible says, even our good works are tainted with sin. But God sees our obedience through the lens of what? Your track record? How many decades you have? How many serving opportunities you fulfill at church? No, God sees our obedience through the lens of the finished work of Jesus Christ, both the active and passive obedience of Christ, meaning both in his perfect, obedient, sinless life and his perfect, atoning, propitiating death that we mentioned last week. Can we grieve him? Of course we can. Do we bring displeasure to him? Of course. God is not pleased if we murder someone in our hearts. And of course, if we literally killed another, of course that doesn't please our God. But I think we recovering legalists get tripped up with two different things here. Number one, God's love for us is, is in, unconditional, true? Our, our salvation is based not on our works so no one could boast, but by faith alone, in Christ alone, right? And so out of that love and our justification by the record of Christ's righteousness, we are then called to live for him out of sheer joy and thankfulness, and may this be true as we pray this for us individually, but also corporately. Philippians 1 6 that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. So it's okay, brothers and sisters. It's all good then to say, Lord, out of my justification and in the process of my sanctification by the power of your spirit, may we, may I love, may I live to please you, Lord. And we will do so imperfectly, God. Oh, but thanks be to you, God, that the record of Jesus is what you see in our stead. This is what helps a recovering legalist says, okay, if it's formulated that way, it makes complete sense. There is nothing good in me to please God, but it is faith in the one who was sent for me that grants me the ability to be pleasing to God.
all by his good grace. Let us pray. Oh God, would you point us to the Son by your Holy Spirit? Oh, point us to the Son. How lovely he is. How wonderful he is. Oh, the author, yet also the finisher and perfecter of our faith. Oh, the source of our sanctification, but also the only reason we are pleasing in your sight is because of the Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for making that known to us who are sinners by the intervention, the supernatural intervention of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, may we boldly say, oh, out of love for us, may we learn to live in a way that pleases you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.